Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time, Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is we continue to address and solve issues between rural and urban America. We've got those all fixed, so now we work on issues between every corner of the world. Jay Truett checking in, sounding crystal clear, so he must not be in Missouri. Andrew Henderson thought that some business meeting took priority over what we were going to talk about today. And Jay Truett apparently had something more important than showing up at the I-35 Cattlemen's Meeting in Cameron, Missouri on Saturday night. Yeah, I decided to have uh, join a family dinner since my sister drove all the way from uh, West Texas to come up just to have dinner so sorry you finished second uh now i'm completely confused because if most people's sister come they would be looking for a cattleman's meeting to go eat prime rib (laughs) no i so this is uh my little sister like is just as sweet as can be and funny so uh i uh i felt obligated well, hang out with the family th- crew. Thanks for loading up your pretty, young, polite, funny sister and bring her along to the trade <laughs> event. Yeah, you know what, though? She's, uh, she's while she grew up on a ranch, uh, she would probably tell you that she is uh, agriculture appreciative, but not agriculture uh, uh, informed. So... Uh, as long as you have food at the grocery store near her, yeah, um, she thinks you're doing a great job, and she <laughs> loves you nonetheless. <laughs> no, bless her heart, she was allergic to everything in the world, and I mean like really allergic, wow. not yeah. just not just one of those people that had allergies. Yeah. And so when we were growing up, um, she was the kid that got stuck in the house, uh, clean in the house because everything outside seemed to uh, uh, wreck her physically. So. Uh, it's a lot better now. She's she kind of got over it after she got older. But uh, uh, well, I have a funny story someday I can tell you about uh, her riding a horse in a clothesline and Ooh. Uh, how that all. So that never goes good. We, uh, we were playing, playing tag on uh, horseback, which is what ranch kids do, right? Yeah. And. Uh, <clears throat> It almost ended badly for her. We didn't really realize that she was real short and her feet didn't touch the ground when uh, uh, she got pulled off. So it was almost a really ugly incident. But it, again, all's well that ends well. And that one finally ended well. Yeah. But uh, anyway. She well, got, that's, she that's, got, that's the kind of thing that brought Mar- Marty Beard and I to such a bond is uh, 22 below one day in Bismarck. And we saddled up and played mule polo for two hours. <laughs> because why not yeah but it, i did figure out that if you really want to bomb proof your your ride whether it be a mule or a horse start swinging right. a croquet club or a mule, mule or a polo club around the head of the animal and you can take them anywhere Things if you can change. do that yeah stuff they you 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 find out all the hidden secrets at that point don't you you know what bomb proof really means then <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly you oh uh, that's kind of funny yeah and then uh, by the way when you get uh, done actually, swinging that club around their head and they don't do anything then that little puck whatever you're using for your polo ball is laying at their feet uh, so you take your club and you swing 
at polo. Yeah, I mean, you got to have a whole new appreciation for people who play polo now. Yeah. No. What, so when I was young, uh, my dad was a, a pretty good polo player, right? And uh, so later in life, I thought, uh, uh, you know, I got to a certain age. I thought, well, I'm going to try that. So mm-hmm. I get a hold of the sticks and I go out there and. I found out really quickly that's not my that's not my forte. Uh, I nearly crippled a horse and and uh, ended up falling off and and uh, catapulting myself via a polo club uh, about twenty yards. You know, <laughs> was lucky that it had a blunt end on it instead of a, a sharp point, or it had gone through my chest. So every Almost every aspect of how you can have a wreck in polo, I did it all at once. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the other part that you bring up, that once you have the whatever you're riding all secure in this, you you got to learn how to swing a club and stay on a horse. <laughs> right. Well, and then on top of that, you have to realize that other people are going to hit that thing the opposite direction, right? <laughs> Uh, which is also known as where I am, and uh, uh, it, it it I again I have I have huge admiration for people that play polo. Uh, I just know that I'm not one of them. So and, uh, I I I considered myself a pretty good horseman, but uh, polo and I just didn't we didn't really mesh. So in your dad's time, then did they have a polo league or what was he doing? They. So kind of did, right? Um, there uh, out of La Mesa, Texas, there was a mm-hmm. group of guys that got together and they kind of would travel around to some of the local communities. And, and uh, you know, we that was kind of back in the era of when ranch rodeos and all that kind of stuff came about. And, uh, or not really came about, but were, were, were gaining in popularity for a little while there. And uh, my dad, uh, who is a great, uh, a great horseman, number one, and uh, he could just he could do anything uh, mm. on him. So if you wanted to run a Pony Express race, sure he was in. If mm. you wanted to do a calf roping, he would win. And uh, <laughs> if you uh, if you wanted to uh, to to play polo, fine, give me the silly hat, I'm in. You know, and it was it was kind of funny because. Uh, when you see a bunch of uh, hardcore cowboys, right, in that part of Texas, uh, yeah, uh, those are those are guys that make a living horseback, right? And uh, they, uh, you're you're looking at quarter horses, not warm bloods, and all the things that go with it. So everything you've seen on TV about polo is not how that <laughs> went. <laughs> and you could get punched in the face, yeah, you know, pretty easily. <laughs> and uh, polo clubs can be a weapon too. And uh, it's a little bit I so I know nothing about hockey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I I just grew up in the wrong part of the country to under to have a natural understanding of hockey, but I have watched uh, a lot of hockey uh, later in life, and there's a difference between the way different regions of the world play hockey, you know, and, and kids play hockey, and and uh, I think we were there's a there's a true way. Western version of polo that is not the same as regular polo. Anyway, it involves more people getting hurt. And that was the kind of polo they played. But it was still fun. It was great family outings. And 
again, my dad's a great horseman. It was always fun to watch him do stuff. He'd trick rope for us, uh, uh, at halftime and that kind of stuff, you know, it was, it was just cool. It, that was a, it's one of the truly great things that I remember about my dad growing up. So it was fun. Yeah. You're creating a longing for those old activities that we no longer participate in unless we have a phone in the middle of it. Well, that's, and see, that's what I was going to say. You know, I mean, like the whole fun thing was, it didn't take anything to really do it. They mm-hmm. kind of marked off a place out beside the rodeo arena and played. Yeah, exactly. And if it was if it was a great pasture, good. If it wasn't, well, that's also good. Yeah, you know. And everybody just parked their vehicles around the outside. And there was no divot stomping and all that. Some guy thought it was great that he was getting free manure, you know, out <laughs> on a pasture somewhere, and it. It just is what it is, you know. Everybody drive. We all drove pickups, right? There were, oh, there'd be a handful of cars parked around there, but most people were driving a pickup, you know, and have a little horse speed. Your bed of your pickups full of kids and tack, you know, and uh, and uh, dragging an old so, dragging an old horse trailer. So accidentally, Jay. Well, if you got a horse trailer, you got a better fence for the arena. I mean, that's I've yeah, been to many exactly Indian right. rodeos yeah. where that the horse and the trailer were the perimeter of yeah. the rodeo. No, exactly right, exactly. But this is a so, second conversation I've had this week that really leads to a discussion about the seventies and eighties turning out to be the golden era of America. Maybe. And, I mean, and, you think you about know, when we were kids. You didn't say, worry about anything. You just you went and did it. You didn't have what we yeah. perceived to be the political challenges of the day. And the seventies and eighties just kind of were the climax of that. Yeah, I uh, think it was the end for sure. You know, because when we entered into that price controls mechanism, I think we did things to American agriculture that ended up. Uh, when I go back and I read read about that era, right? And you mm-hmm. kind of get really cold and objective about it. Some of the things that we did politically probably uh, ended a lot of agriculture operations, uh, family operations in America for no good reason. Yep. And Great really place sad. to pick it up when we come back with the second segment. Roll route, J. Truett, Trent Lewis after this. Get more details about nitric oxide, NO2U. Go to the website, loosetailsmedia.com. Watch Nathan Bryant explain the science behind why you must increase your nitric oxide production and supplement with NO2U. On the web, loosetailsmedia.com. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Lewis alongside Jay Truett coming to us. Uh, from the icy DFW area. Yeah. Well, it will be icy. It's warm today, but it's going to be icy. Mm-hmm. So one below I'm trying to figure house. out how to get out of here. Uh, so I want to get back to those price supports, but there's one guy that would know that better than you and I, and he was in attendance at my meeting Saturday night, Cameron, Missouri. I'm guessing you can guess who that was because I used him as the the whipping boy. Oh, who? It wasn't. I don't think I do know. No, I thought you, you would whip just... all the time. Besides me and Andrew. Well, if you had this guy in your audience, you'd whip on him too. He's eighty-four years old. He's been there, done that. Involved in agriculture and the cattle business at every level. Let's clip. Oh yeah, 
Glenn Clippenstein. Yeah. Glenn Clippenstein. <laughs> he, I, I don't. I don't try to whip on Glenn. I try to actually <laughs> just listen and laugh. <laughs> but sometimes you have to know how to get him spurred. And if oh, you yeah, if you great. whip on him the right way, and I I nailed him as soon as he come up because he has been a campaigner against the wind development in Northwest Missouri. <laughs> yeah. So the yeah. minute he, he saw me come one. through the door, he came busting over there and he just wanted to say hi. And I said, man, I sure appreciate that beautiful view driving across 36, all those wind turbines you've given me. <laughs> Trent, now you don't yeah, need to be doing that. to tell me where to go. <laughs> I just told you know, somebody I was going to yeah. stay out of your way, and then you go and do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fun, right? And it, and you really can wind him up on that. It's, oh, it's yeah. one of the fun things to do. All you have to do is just talk about it. Uh, we, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but uh, uh, so he tags along with his son Brian while we go sailing every once in a while. And here a couple of years ago, uh, I couldn't help it. Uh, we were sailing in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and uh, Brian and I had been in D.C. for a few days doing something, and we uh, we descended, decided to grab a sailboat, and he was in the area, and so we took a couple of their family members, Brian's daughters, at the Naval Academy, right? And so we had sailed by there, literally, so that you can see that's a very cool thing to do if you ever get a chance. And, uh, and lo and behold, I couldn't help it. We get right out there in the middle, and the wind's just blowing really strong. And I go, Glenn, wouldn't this be a great place for a wind farm? Look at the way the wind just whistles up through here. Four hours later, Glenn decided that he was done instructing me on all the pitfalls of the wind industry. You know, I told it Kelly, though, fun. Jay, when, when I left, uh, I, I stayed there Saturday night. And by the way, we had a fantastic crowd, and there's something I want to talk about in that. But um, uh-huh. uh, as I left Sunday and I called Kelly, I said, you know, Glenn Klippenstein is one of those guys I've got to get back to with my TV camera and capture the essence of what he's really accomplished. I wonder how many people know him that don't really know everything he's accomplished in his life. I mean, he's just one of those living yeah. legends. He really is a cool guy. And and so, I and listen, if he was sitting right here, we'd have exactly the same conversation. There's some people that he would say, listen, I rub them the wrong way. Uh, they're not terribly keen on me, et cetera. And, and, and so be it, right? I mean, right, if you absolutely. ever really stood for anything in your life, you're going to piss some people off. Yeah. And I, I, I understand that too. Uh, it does, but it never changes what he really thinks. And he just works on his arguments better. And, you know, again, I, I was, I, we were laughing about the fact that he scolded me for four hours, but it really, it wasn't like a, something. I still considered him a friend at the end of the four hours of scolding as I did at the beginning, you know. And I didn't really have an opinion about wind, and it made me go back and actually think and look. And I think if you can do anything in life that really has value, and that is, it, it, that's one of those things, right? Is mm-hmm. to make people think. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't in today's world, it's become this thing, you know, where we think shock value makes people think. But Glenn's one of those people that'll make you think otherwise. And uh, we've had we've had he and I have had 
some pretty loud and pretty aggressive conversations about the beef industry over the years, right? And what should and shouldn't happen and what's, what are the solutions, et cetera. Uh, and the truth is I never walked away from one of those conversations thinking that Glenn had underthought it. And, oh, absolutely. And or, right. And or the fact that his heart wasn't absolutely in the right place. And, uh, he is one of those people that, that, uh, thinks and feels and has great compassion for people in the industry. You might not like his perspective on one issue or another, right. but you will never doubt that he loves the beef industry as much as any human I've ever known. And, uh, and the people in the industry, he just loves people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they don't, they don't have to like him for him to love them back. And that's a, that's also kind of a good trait. I, yeah. And, and to your point, if people really, I, I think I'm one of the few people that really has heard almost all of his life story, and 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 been a part a part of big parts of it. Um, he is one of those people that truly has uh, has an impressive story. Probably worth writing down in a book somewhere and just uh, just to remember it. Yeah, cool guy, very cool guy. And yeah. if you can just make those cheeks get red, you've yeah. won. Yeah. I well, get him all fired up. <laughs> right after I got him fired up on the win, um, I said, "Oh, Glenn, besides all that, you really look good, Trent." <laughs> you know, that's what you tell old guys that you think shouldn't be around anymore, but yet you run into them while they're alive. <laughs> but that's not true. He looks really good. Yeah. And for a guy that's in his 80s, he is still mentally as sharp as a tack there. There's oh, not uh, oh, no, yes. missing there yeah. at all. Well, He's, it was just a treat to have him there and, and be able to hang around his territory for a while. But the thing I wanted to bring up is, Jay, I've seen something change in the last couple of years. And I, I don't think this is COVID-related directly, but I've seen it through this period of time at the the local organizations and I'm talking ag commodity organizations because that's what I can speak to so particularly cattlemen groups uh, I think it's also happening in corn and soybean groups we have old duffers that are in leadership positions at the state and the national level but at the local level at the county level and in the case of I-35 cattlemen which is actually uh, comprised of six counties it's young families young 30-year-olds that are stepping up to be leaders in these local groups. And I'm seeing it not just in Missouri. I'm seeing this everywhere in the country. And that's pretty reassuring, actually. It really is. And, I I, I mean, it was funny that you were, when when you brought up the word, you know, of of the organization. I I had a a meeting this past week with a group that's trying to think about forming a, a, a cooperative and doing some some work together. And I was amazed at who showed up to be in the room. I mean, just truly amazed. And there's some, I mean, what, you know, we were just being nostalgic about the seventies and the, and the eighties and, and uh, the people before our generation are nostalgic about the forties and the fifties, right. And so on and so forth. But, but all of us, we have a kind of a tendency, I think, you know, uh, to to think that the next generation is not going to pick up the torch and and do something. And this last week was this, I mean, really inspirational thing for me that occurred, which was 
there's some really bright young people that are uh, involved in agriculture that just they don't spend a lot of time in town and they haven't really moved up into that those true blue leadership roles but they're more than capable these are people that understand technology they're they're you know they're they're smart young people that have a lot of dirt and under their fingernails and a lot of a lot of calluses on their hands they know uh, how the, the the whole system works they're not naive about the world and uh, they they know that they have to do some things differently maybe than what people did in the past right but they they also have a pretty firm grasp and a pretty pretty firm appreciation for what happened in the past and I think you know that's that's an interesting it's an interesting thing right if you're not careful you get yourself in a box and you think oh well it's all going to hell in a handbasket yeah. that's actually not the case. Just not it, the case. It does change one dynamic, though, that I've always appreciated about the meeting. Is the meeting after the meeting? Because you see, in the meeting, I'm speaking, so I don't learn a darn thing. But when you go to the watering right. hole at the meeting after the meeting, then that's when I can really accumulate knowledge. But when you have young families uh -huh. that are 30 years old and three kids at home under 10, they go home. They don't go to the meeting after the meeting. Yeah. So I, that, yeah, right. that part of the dynamics I don't appreciate as much, but I absolutely love yeah. the fact they're stepping up Austin's story there. Cameron was a great example. Jay Tripp, we've got to take a break. We're halfway through already. We'll be back with more Raw Route after this. Now let's get back to talking about acquiring payment for the quality of cattle you produce. In this case, we're talking about certified Piedmontese as a viable niche marketing opportunity. If you're a cattleman in the Great Plains of America, and want to receive upwards of $180 per head over market price, then go to LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Certified Piedmontese could be in your future. On the web, LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Welcome back. Roll route. Trent Lewis alongside Jay Truitt. We've uh, been through several periods. Let's go back, Jay, to something that you brought up. And I don't know. I, you, I mentioned 70s and 80s was the golden time to be growing up. Uh, I'm pretty confident that those farm policies that created the problem were created a generation before, uh, like FDR kind of things. Yeah. And it just took that long to come into effect. And that'll lead me into what I'm seeing happening today in droves. I got people contacting me about government contacting farmers and ranchers and asking to pay to let land idle and offering CRP contracts before their current contract yeah. is up at two and three times the amount. There's a, these farm policies are not immediate. And it, uh, you know, it's Calvin Coolidge in 21 who said, if we continue to pay farmers not to farm, we are going to eliminate the farmer. Yeah. And I think I think that's actually maybe you mentioned where maybe it started, and I think it really does go back to that and the end of that time period. When you look, uh, one of the things, uh, when I lobbied the uh, House Agriculture Committee on a regular basis, for people that for people involved in agriculture, if you're ever in Washington D.C., go to the Longworth Building. You go up to the third floor. It's right in the front of the building. Is the House Agriculture Committee, and inside that committee room, when you go in, it's a it's a kind of a small room. It's a lot smaller in real life than what it looks like on TV when you see it. 
But behind the behind the chairman is a wall of books. And in those in those books are the history of every single agriculture committee. They're actually formally published mm-hmm. in a hardback version. And uh, they do they do a dozen copies or so. And I used to always pick up a copy and I literally would sit in the back of that room. Uh, and for the parts of the hearing that didn't matter to me, I would sit and flip through and read them. And I read those histories. And if you think that we had contention during, say, like the 96 Farm Bill or those farm bills in the 80s or uh, the 70s or even uh, the 50s. Go back and read the the battles, literally, that took place and sometimes to fisticuffs um, that took place in in subcommittees in the hallway um, during the early teens. And what you realize is that we had, that's where we started trying to identify whether we were going to have a supply-demand public policy or we were going to have a supply-controlled public policy. And the U.S. hadn't always had cheap food at that point, and we hadn't always had sustainable uh, food production, right? Let's be honest about where we were in the whole process. Mechanization was very first coming in, um, you really were hearing from people that were in the horse industry that were worried about what was going to happen with the horse market as tractors moved in and people didn't like the noise and oil and Rockefellers were the evil people of the time period. They were the Bill Gates of then. And, and so all of those things were coming into play, right? And for the first time, really, in the history of the United States, we were honestly kind of leaving the barter system as a principal means of doing business in rural America and moving to a cash-only basis. And that really was kind of one of the, the triggers that caught, I mean, people just sold grain just for cash. They didn't trade most of it and then sell what was left or figure out how to utilize it. And uh, you had cash grain farmers and cash cotton farmers and cash tobacco farmers. And um, the government realized how much cash there was. And so they decided to get involved in really regulating the industry. And we, we've made more mistakes than successes since then, um, I think. And like you said, we... Uh, I think probably as a mean for the in the depression we did things to survive as a country uh, economically and then uh, we had a, a little incident called World War two that came along and during that time period we cast a lot of that that policy that had been intended to be temporary we made it permanent mm-hmm. and in 1948 we made what is the current permanent law. And that just means that it was the act that passed by super majorities and we, you know, it was all cast in. But the themes of that act still ring true through a lot of stuff. And conservation programs were one of the things that they were trying to figure out how to bail people out uh, um, prior to that just because of the Dust Bowl. And our conservation initiatives today don't remotely resemble what the intent was of that time. Um, But... Here we are. The government's still trying to figure out how to uh, uh, how to run the industry. So and they can't. They're just not no. good at it. 
No, they will create starvation, and that's documented throughout the course of history when government gets too involved in land ownership and food production. But I I had a most fascinating, and Jay, if you ever get to Quincy, Illinois, which is where I'm at today, yesterday I spent another Uh, day with Don McKinley. Don McKinley has put together a 1930s ag museum in Quincy, and I can't remember how many tens of thousands of pieces, like 10,000, 12,000 pieces of farm equipment or horse bits or plows. He's got everything, the dibble stick. You name a period of agriculture dating back 12,000 years, he's got something that represents it. And yesterday, he walked me through this 12,000-year timeline of food production and and really when he does it the way he does he puts in the very visual that for 11,500 years there was very little invention in food production right the wheel was invented yeah. that was the biggest thing which the wheel is a big thing but the wheel right. to mechanize the movement of anything was a big deal the first cart you know and we didn't really even use horsepower or draft until the last 400 years that's when we started using we used uh, women as draft pulling plows before we used horses yeah my wife would buck at that idea (laughs) she just she'd be the only one kathy truett would be the only one that would be opposed every other woman would be like can i get my harness fit to size me right yeah, I can promise you that Kelly Luce would not be have the harness on her neck either. Uh, Trent would, and yeah. Kelly would be yeah, whipping exactly. the right. heck out of you. Uh, uh, yeah, you'd learn what he and Hall meant. That's what you would learn. So and the, re- the reality of all this is that until yeah. 1800, there was z- zero, if any, improvement. In the efficiency of food production. I mean, we moved from hunter-gatherer to domesticating things, mm-hmm. and and there was some progress. But in a 200-year period of time, if you think about going from the, the dibble stick to GPS driving vehicles and doing everything that we do with... What, what, what's the difference? Why 200, the last 200 years have we accelerated what 10,500 years did not before? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I do, I do think that, um, uh, the biggest driver in the United States for innovation literally was, uh, and I can't speak to the whole world, and we can go back and talk about that too. But um, in the United States, when when you look at that history, it literally was that we made a conscious decision in this country, which is a little different than what happened in almost all of human history prior to that. And that was we made a conscious decision that people should not be hungry. And and at that, at that, just that little subtle difference, uh, people in, in other, prior to that in history, it was that you don't want people to be hungry. Mm-hmm. You wanted them to, to be fed for certain reasons. But in the United States, we decided that we, we didn't want it to happen at all. Um, and that was, I think, as a society and that we, that we had the, we realized that we, 
maybe it was also this, we realized that we had the capacity just to do it differently and better. And so people, if you look back in the, in the 20s and 30s, man, we embraced some things. Um, we embraced the use of some equipment that was, to say that it was hazardous to your health, uh, your, your physical safety and well-being to use it is an understatement. Uh, but we did, but we did it because we realized that we could harvest faster or that we could, you know, uh, cultivate faster or, or whatever. And a lot of that equipment just, you know, uh, by today's standards, you look at it and you go, man, that is just like a death trap waiting to happen. But we did it and nobody, uh, nobody blinked an eye, uh, because, uh, we were, we, we made a conscious decision as a society that we were going to feed everyone. And then about 20 years later, we decided we would just feed the world. If right. they couldn't do it, we would. Yeah. And it took, but again, the Dust Bowl in the United States created real hunger mm-hmm. in the United States. And I do think that that was a, a catalyst for us to uh, just step back and say, okay, we're not gonna, we're not doing this, right? This is what we did when we lived in Germany or Russia or England or uh, uh, Italy or wherever it was that most of the immigrants were coming from at that time period, um, and, and we're not doing this anymore. I I, I met with some people uh, uh, here uh, a couple of weeks ago that were uh, uh, Russian that got kicked out of Russia because they were successful back when it was a communist country, right? Right. Uh, or well, still a communist country, but you remember uh, during the the old Soviet state yep. days. Right. And uh, it, it's funny when you talk to people like that; they st- they still have this memories burnt into their head in the '60s and the '70s mm-hmm. of being hungry. And you can't find that as a broad part of society in the United States today. Yes, we have people that go hungry, but it's really a distribution or, or issue more so than a production capacity issue, right? We don't, we haven't, we haven't lacked the capacity up until some of these things that, that people are trying to create scenarios now where we may actually lack capacity at some point in the future. Yeah. That kind of alarms me, but man, man. you get my point, right? Right. And and so those people came from those countries, and they came here, and they go, listen, uh, we're just not going to do that anymore. We're going to do whatever it takes to get there. And so if you ask me to sit uh, on a little metal seat six inches above um, a, a whirring sickle, um, where if my foot falls off, it's going to cut it off at the mm-hmm. ankle, um, I'm willing to do it. And, and your eight-year-old kid on the seat yeah. right next to you. we got to take a yeah. break. Roll route. Jay Truett, one segment left after this. Get details about protecting your own property and preserving the American experience at protecttheharvest.com. Welcome back. Roll route. Trent Lewis alongside Jay Truett. Uh, we've evolved into an interesting discussion because, I mean, people laugh, but if you look at that old equipment, it's all got a seat for a kid, which, by the way, was the number one reason to populate the earth in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was to have farm labor. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, we're going to yeah. have to go back to that because you can't hire anybody, so you have to go back to slave labor through well. your own kids. Yeah, well, I I used to refer to myself as a slave, but the truth is, I consider it like one of the great blessings that I got in life was that I 
I grew up in one of those uh, those families where we got up and we worked. Right, my uh, my dad expected us to uh, uh, meet the meet the expectations of the day, just like a grown man when you were seven years old. And uh, and so, luckily, you know, uh, it's true, right? That some sometimes that created havoc and chaos and and uh, et cetera. But the truth of the matter is. Uh, I can't think of a greater blessing that I had than a than a set of parents that were willing to just put me out there and let me uh, let me figure it out, you know. Uh, and I and I do think that it's it's sadly there was no coddling, you know. Um, at the time, again, and at the time, I felt like, hey, you know, I don't have enough people helping me. Later in life, my dad and I had conversations about that, and I said, hey, did you know that I was having all that trouble? And he goes, but did you know that I was sitting up on the hill, way over <laughs> on a far hill, with uh, watching you, yeah. right? And he goes, if you'd have gotten in trouble, I would have been over there. But he goes, you can't fig- you can never learn how to fix something yourself and figure your way out of a situation unless you do it yourself, right? You, somebody can't describe it to you and you truly understand it. You have to actually do it yourself. And I think that's one of the sad things about this meta society, you know, and the the idea that we're going to do stuff virtually and that we're going to have AI learning driving all of our lives is the fact that it is AI learning and it's not us learning. Um, We just see the results of that. We don't actually experience it. So we don't understand all the twists and turns, you know, and the pain that's involved. But, uh, again, it's good to be nostalgic. I, did, I, was, I started to say this earlier, though, Trent, and this was an important thing. My grandfather beat this into my head all the time. He would, he would tell me every day. He would say, hey, listen, all your life you're going to have somebody tell you, and he goes, someday you're going to say these words yourself. Boy, it was great in the good old days. But <clears throat> this man who had been born at the turn of the century, uh, I think 1902, um, would would remind me that in the quote unquote good old days, if you got sick, you died. Right. And uh, you know that uh, we we didn't really have the 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 knowledge base to fix all of the problems. We had to create that, you know. Mm-hmm. And he goes the thing he goes, and that shouldn't mean that you look on those days negatively. He goes, what you have to what you have to set your mind to is the fact that you have to remember what it took to get through those days. And that's still going to be the same things you need to do today. The problems are just different. And and so figure it out, boy, I mean, was always his his thing. He, he wouldn't tell you the answer. He would ask you a question, but he would never tell you the answer. And you go, well, what do you think? He, he goes, I'm not going to tell you what I think because that doesn't matter. You have to figure that out. And we've lost that that spirit in a lot of respects, I think. And uh, we've got to get it back. Well, and we've actually come full, drove me into public policy. We've come full circle because, and by the way, this is National FFA Week. And yeah, if is, you right, want a little inspiration about the future, just show up at a local FFA chapter and you will find young mm-hmm. people that are trying to find a way to make it work until we get in their way. Yeah. But we've come full circle because you just said a mouthful when you talked about your parents and the expectations of the day. The kids have not changed. The parental expectations of the day have changed. 
which allows for a different outcome in the kids and kids that are not problem solvers. And that, that is exactly why we have a, a set of young people today that are stepping up to be leaders of organizations because they have this expectation of the day that they're going to be the change maker. Yeah. It's that simple. Come back to the expectations no. of the day. You get what you expect. Yeah. That which again, my and I know this. Uh, I'm over quoting him this morning, but my my grandfather said something that I was probably 30 years old before I truly appreciated what it meant. Um, and it was, he said, people will never exceed an expectation that you don't have for them. And uh, and he goes so, and and he never really would explain that. It took me a long time in life before I, I really fully appreciated what that meant. But it really is true. And it, you know, you can create false expectations. But the truth is, um, you you have to you have to actually set a high bar and 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 look for people to uh, to meet that. If they don't, it doesn't mean that you hate them or that you call them a failure. It just means that you you if you think that you need to help them, then you help them exceed that that expectation the next time. But we, you're right. I think it's uh, what you said is like a profound truth. Um, it, it is upon us as parents and grandparents and great grandparents not to fall into this trap uh, where, uh, you know, little Johnny or little Susie or whoever, you know, well, it's just okay. And uh, uh, I, I got fortunate. I got to spend the weekend with my granddaughter. She came, uh, she flew in to spend a long weekend with us. And we had a bunch of family events that were going on, but during that time period, it was interesting. You can tell she's one of those little girls that has been raised to have expectations and they have to be create. She has to create some and some are created for her. And, uh, and she intends on challenging herself. Right. And when you talk, talk to her about it, she, she has big plans for herself. And that's not the, that's not the way with all kids that are 12, 13, 14 years old in America. And I do think it, it says something positive about uh, some parents and something really negative about a bunch of parents uh, that we just have to be honest about. Yeah, and we're not going to fix it. They have to recognize that, hey, we've got to change our approach. Yeah, I can't make you do. No. There's almost nothing that I can honestly make you do that at the end. I can make you want to do something. Mm-hmm. But I almost can't. I can't change your behavior just hey, because. Hey, right? Jay, the lobbyist, I got an idea. There ought to be a law for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I will tell you. Every time somebody calls me about wanting to to lobby something in D.C., and mostly I don't lobby for people anymore. I teach people how to lobby. But the first thing I tell them is uh, is that of all the possible answers, if you think government is the only one, then your problem is probably <laughs> not going to go away. Yeah. It's just going to change. Yeah. <laughs> so first, why don't you figure out how to fix this yourself? And I do think that's a lesson for us in agriculture. We're, whether we're talking about really tough issues that the, the industries have to address. Let's say it's like this whole issue over price discovery in the beef industry. That's a real thing. It's real. Right. And the pork industry, same thing. It's real. You have to ask yourself honestly and truly, do you really? Everybody goes, well, we don't have the power to do it without government stepping in. When, as soon as you say that government is your only answer and is the only solution to a problem, um, you have you have an even bigger problem. Yeah. 
it, it, it doesn't mean that government isn't involved in the answer, et cetera, et cetera. But again, that's coming from a person that made their living as a lobbyist a big part of his life. And I'm just telling you that government is almost always going to do a poorer job than some private industry alternative. But we, we tend to kind of get lazy and we default over and we go, yeah, but this would be easier if we would just make a law that says everybody has to be like me, you know, or do it the way I want it done. That um, it's sometimes it's necessary, right? There's good things that the government does. I can't think of any right off the top of my head, but there are some good they things further there somewhere. Once in a while, they adjourn and go home. That's a good thing yeah. they do. Yeah, yeah, they go on vacation, right? That yeah. is a positive. But but you know the part of it that we don't we Hank brought to the forefront yesterday is the actual actual elected officials adjourn and go home. But the bureaucrats are there 24-7, Never. 365, Man. and they are yeah. the problem. And there's six counties in the United States of America that are full of those people. That's what I think that's the – if you go to D.C., the thing for you to notice is not the capital, but how long it takes you to get from the edge of the metropolitan area to the capital. And realize that every one of those tall buildings you drive past and every one of those neighborhoods is full of bureaucrats in every direction that you can drive to it from. It, it will take you two hours to drive the last 20 miles during rush hour at best, maybe three. And I, I almost intentionally tell people to go during rush hour just so that they can look around. It gives you plenty of time because you're going to be stopped on the interstate. And you can look around and you can go like, holy crap, all of these people are going to work to try to run my life. Yeah. And if you don't come to that conclusion, you went there with the wrong with the wrong mindset. Well, you're just not paying attention, period. Yeah. No. Well it's, that, it, it doesn't it, mean doesn't, it, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater trend. But we can just change the bathwater on yeah. a regular basis, right? Well, it comes back to one common thing. You said it. I'm going to say it more directly. If you're sitting back expecting somebody else, whether it be government or somebody else, to fix your problems, your problems are going to magnify. If you step yeah. up to the plate and say, I'm going to be a change agent, then you can yeah. take control of your life and your kid's future. And that's what it's about. Yeah, you don't have to run a national organization to be a change agent. Be no. a change agent in your own family. Be a change agent in your own community. Find three people and you guys sit down and instead of just griping, bitching and moaning at the coffee shop that morning, sit down and say, okay, so uh, how do we actually fix that? What mechanically fixes that? This exact problem that we have, what fixes that? And I, I do think, again, I think the that broad desire to think that way is what made American – Listen, does anybody in the United States of America honestly believe that our land is better than, say, Ukrainian land or southern mm. Russian land? Mm. It's really not. If no. you've been there, you know that that's a lie. Right. It, it's not. Our land is generically not better than most of Ethiopia. Most of Ethiopia has some of the most productive uh, ground and all the natural resources to make it work. What you see on TV is one little corner of the country that's up in the dry that mountains. They want you to see. But most of it, 
Yeah, but most of it lies along the Nile River, and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I've been there, lived there for a while, and seen it and and experienced it. the The topsoil is uh, is ten feet deep, and it's black, and it's it's a loam soil that's just marvelous. But those people still starve. Why? What's the difference between innovation and, and Iowa? We're, uh, we're out of time. We'll, we'll yeah. pick it up right there next week. J. Trent Loose. All roads do lead to a roll route. We're out of here.